morning, brothers and sisters. It is uh, something we constantly need to be reminded of is that we are among brothers and sisters uh, as we gather here this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and people with whom we will spend eternity. Uh, we recognize that we will spend eternity with uh, all of God's people across space and time, uh, but that includes the people, and who knows, maybe in unique ways, uh, beyond our understanding, uh, that includes most certainly the people with whom we worship day in and day out and serve and who serve us. And, uh, so uh, it is just always needed to be reminded that we are among brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the language that the Lord has given us in his word for understanding the nature of the church, that God is our Father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ, our elder brother and our Lord, and we brothers and sisters in Christ. So it is a joy to gather and to gather with that in view as we fellowship together. And by the way, let me just say uh, that entails with it uh, a call to relate to one another while we're here on a Sunday morning. So uh, we're not coming to just sort of sit down and receive something and then dash out. Uh, but take time to interact with God's people, to live out that brother and sistering together. If you would please go with me in your Bibles for today to Exodus 30. We are in Exodus 30 verses 11 to 21. Exodus 30, 11 to 21. Speaking of brothers and sisters, it was such a blessing for the elders to get away together last weekend uh, for an elders retreat. And I want to thank Ken and Michelle for their hospitality as uh, we, we stayed at, at Ken's house at the lake in, in uh, Alabama. And Michelle just was so gracious to prepare it for us uh, so perfectly. Uh, so we're grateful for, for their hospitality. But we had just a wonderful time together to read scripture, to pray, to discuss the church, and, and really just to spend time together as Christian brothers, uh, as those who love one another before the Lord, as those who are brothers in Christ. And so it really was a special time. And it was also a blessing that we were able to come back to hear Tommy preach to us from Jonah. It just reminds me, as we're in Exodus and Tommy's preaching Jonah, uh, you know, you heard several years ago, Andy Stanley, pastor in uh, Atlanta, satellite churches all over the place, uh, saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And just a reminder, as we're in Exodus and, and there with Jonah, that we most certainly do not need to unhitch from the Old Testament. We've seen that as we've gone through uh, this particular portion, especially with the tabernacle, all, especially this, right? I mean, you might think, well, we could at least unhitch from those bits, uh, those parts that are sort of monotonous and potentially boring and, and seemingly irrelevant. Uh, but no, not at all. We, we don't unhitch from any of it because we see the way in which it prepares for Christ and the way in which it points us to him and the life of holiness that God has called us to. So it was gr I was grateful to hear Tommy's sermon from Jonah. And then today, to be back in Exodus... And that means that we return to the tabernacle. We've talked about the tabernacle structure. Let me go ahead um, and get you guys, if you would, to put up the slide of the whole tabernacle. So this is where we've been for a while. And we've talked about this tabernacle structure. The most holy place, which you see there inside of that tent, 
all the way to the back, the most holy place. And then in the front part of the tent, you get the holy place. And then outside of the tent structure, you have the courtyard or the court. And all of these are separated by veils uh, showing this holiness. And so the outside of the tabernacle structure is separated with this gated courtyard entrance veil, you could call it that. And then you go through into the court and you've got another veil uh, that separates you from the tent. And then you go into that and then you have a very special veil with the cherubim, the angelic creatures uh, embroidered on it, which separates you from the most holy place. So we've seen this structure, we've seen these rooms, we've seen these veils. We've talked about the tabernacle furniture. And so within the, the tent there, you have various pieces of furniture, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then outside of the tent, the bronze altar. We've talked about the role, the symbolism, the, the importance and meaning of these various pieces of furniture. And we've talked about the tabernacle servants, so the tabernacle structure, the tabernacle furniture, and the tabernacle servants, the priests. Aaron and his sons, their clothing, their ordination, their sacrifices, and their daily service. This is where we have been for the last several weeks, couple of months, looking at these various aspects of the tabernacle. And I thought it was interesting, maybe it went right past you, or you didn't think it was all that interesting, but I thought it was interesting to see a couple of weeks ago, and, and then even before that, when looking at the altar of incense, that every morning and evening the priests have three tasks. So maybe as you're going through, you know, you're, you're looking at the priests and you're thinking, okay, so what do these guys do all the time? Um, and we know that there are these periodic sacrifices, uh, but it was, I, I think it's illuminating for us to understand that this is a vibrant place on a daily basis. Uh, there are things that begin the day here at the tabernacle for Israel, and there are things that end the day. Making a sacrifice, burning incense, and tending the lamps. All three of these things happen every single morning and every single evening at twilight. We're also meant to understand that the tabernacle uh, is two things. And we get this language embedded in all of these chapters. The tabernacle is a dwelling place and it is a meeting place. And it's interesting, right as you begin to lean into the description of the priests and their ordination and what they do, as you begin to lean into that, the language switches. So before that, there's the constant reference to the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And then after that point, there is reference to the tent of meeting. So it is both the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. It is both the place where God is, where God dwells, where God locates himself among his people, with his people, and it is the place where God meets with them. And he meets with them through their representatives, the priests. So where are we now? As we have come through so much of this tabernacle section... Well, we've come to the final stretch of the tabernacle instructions that takes us up to the end of chapter 31. So we're getting close to Moses coming down off of the mountain with the, the two tablets, with the Ten Commandments, and finding that the people uh, have been worshiping a golden calf. So we're, we're getting to that point. And, and that really is amazing that we've been up in heaven 
as it were. We've been listening to the Lord speak on the mountain in the glory cloud to Moses, telling him about all this symbolic tabernacle stuff, all of this that points to God's holiness, God's presence. And you can imagine the shock that Moses would have felt after being in the presence of the eternal, infinite, majestic, holy God and coming down off of the mountain to find that the people have made a graven image. They've made a a golden calf and they're engaged in all sorts of illicit behavior and they're worshiping this calf. What a step down from what Moses had seen on the mountain. So that's where we're headed, but we're still up there on the mountain with Moses as the Lord speaks to him. And that will go up to the end of chapter 31, these final instructions. And as one commentator points out, the sections in this final stretch seem like a random set of instructions on various topics. Now, we know they're not random. We know that the Lord has placed them here in this way. And he goes on to say that this final stretch is really about purity. That if you look at these various sections and you try to understand how they tie together, it's really about purity. But they do, on the surface, seem unrelated. From this point all the way up to the end of chapter 31. And what I've decided to do is to take the first two topics together... And you'll see in your ESV Bible, if you have an ESV Bible, if you don't, I'm not sure how the editors have, uh, have grouped these, uh, probably in the very same way. But in the ESV edition, the editors, by the way, the headings are not inspired. The, edi- the headings are placed there by the editors, and the verse divisions are uh, construed by the editors as well. So in the ESV translation, you get the census tax and the bronze basin. And so what I'm going to do this morning is take these two little sections together as one. And in these two little sections, a common theme emerges. And you'll see that in a moment. But here we see the theme of life being preserved. God's instructions ensure the preservation of life. And you find that uniquely in these two passages about the tax, the census tax, and the bronze basin. God is preserving life, life for Israel as a whole and for the priests in particular. So let me get you to bring your eyes to the text for a moment and look in verse 12. You'll see this in each section. So in verse 12, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. In other words, the Lord is giving this instruction to Moses to give to Israel in order that they not die from plague. And then you see the same thing in verse 20. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn when they come in the altar to, near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. And you see that twice in the next verse, so that they may not die. So the title for the sermon this morning is Lives Preserved. 
lives preserved. As we take these two little sections together, seemingly unrelated, and we pull them together with the language that is embedded in the text, we see this emphasis on the Lord through his instructions to his people preserving their very lives. So if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Lives preserved. We're going to read verses 11 to 21. This is the word of the living God. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh, to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a, she- <coughs> excuse me, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras, half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. And the poor shall not give less. So there is an evening out here. There, everyone is the same. There is no distinction here. God's eyes, no distinction in economic status. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. The rich shall not give more. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And then the bronze basin, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. You can go ahead and be seated. By the way, I'll just say this. It was a blessing. On uh, last week when Tommy was preaching and he started to read the scripture, we try to tell people, you know, we stand up when we read the scripture, but it was a blessing. Uh, I, you know, I was kind of not, not sure what I was going to do personally because I didn't want to embarrass Tommy. I didn't want to make him, you know, feel in any way, you know, embarrassed by that. But I started to see everybody stand up, you know, and I thought, this, praise God, this is great. This is embedded in the, con- in, in the congregation, uh, embedded that, that when God's word is read, uh, we stand up in reverence. And you may wonder, why are we doing that? But that is why, because we reverence the word of God. God has spoken to us, and this is his word. What we just read is his word to us, and it, it fully equips us. Uh, it, it gives us life. It nourishes us. It, it is God's means of saving us and sanctifying us and ultimately bringing us to our heavenly destination. And so that's the reason that we stand when we read God's word. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Lord God, we 
praise you this morning that you have brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you, God, that you have given us a family, a spiritual family, Lord, and that these really are our brothers and sisters, and you really are our Father. So God, we bow before you, we praise you, we, we pray into your fatherhood. Lord, you, are, you have reconciled us to yourself. You, you are close to us, you are near to us as the tabernacle pictures. And, and Lord, you are not separated from us in the way that the tabernacle communicates this separation. But Lord, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what a profound truth when we consider our own sinfulness. That even though we are sinners and even though we sin, Lord, you are right there with us. You are in us and we are with you. God, we praise you for the magnitude of your grace and this approach and this access that we have, Lord. And I pray this morning that this these profound truths would just blast away sin from our lives. Uh, that we would take note of the fact that it, it is so grievous to sin against the God who makes himself so known and who makes himself so present with sinners. Lord, would we purge sin from our lives in light of this great grace? Would we hate our sin? Uh, would we hate evil and love righteousness? God, we pray for your grace in that by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word, for how it exalts Christ and we're drawn to him and, and we're transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. We thank you that you use your word to fully equip us for every good work and to train us in righteousness, to remind us of our salvation and to push us forward towards our glorification. God, we thank you for how your word gives us hope and joy and peace and comfort in the midst of all the vicissitudes of life and all of the trials that we face, all of the uncertainties and all of the weights that are on our shoulders. Lord, what joy and peace and rest we have in the gospel in Jesus and through your word as it makes these things known. So Lord, we pray for this time of instruction. We pray that our hearts would be soft towards you in your hands. And we pray that our minds would be sharp and attentive, Lord, that we would fight the sin of distraction, that we would fight the sin of not being attentive to your word. Would we be holy before you in staying our minds on you as we go through this service? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here... We have two straightforward sections with two topics, and these will be our sermon points this morning, so pretty straightforward. If you're taking notes, just one word each. So first, we have the money, verses 11 to 16, and then secondly, the basin, verses 17 to 21. So we see God preserving life. We see God's instruction that preserves life, His concern to preserve the lives of sinners, and we see it. In both of these passages together, both of these sections together, one about the money, which we'll talk about, and the other about the basin. So first, the money. If you would look with me again at verses 11, 16, as we put these verses clearly in view. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, 
Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So here we have a census and the language isn't entirely clear as to whether the Lord is commanding it or assuming it. It starts out when you take the census of the people of Israel, but either way, there will be a census. A census is coming, and this is going to be a counting of the people. And so what the Lord does here is he instructs Moses what to do when that census takes place. It will include the men. And we know that because here we get the military language of 20 years and older. This is very typical of census taking um, and particularly associated in Israel with battle since, and, and throughout the ancient world. Uh, this census taking in which the males 20 years and older who would be uh, able to fight, who would be able to go off to war, this census taking would involve that demographic. Also, from other passages like Numbers 1 and Exodus 38, we know that it is the men over the age of 20 who are counted. So let me quote you Exodus 38, verses 25 to 26. It says this, The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded, so this is toward the very end of the book of Exodus, the silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca, Ahead, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. And so we know from, from that passage and also Numbers 1 that that's what we have in view here in Exodus 30 men over the age of 20. And the Lord tells Moses that when this census takes place, there must be a payment for every head that is counted. The Israelites, represented by the men over the age of 20, must pay a particular amount of money or silver. And let me just say this. As we think of the men here being representative of the people, I think it's just a reminder of the important role of husbands and fathers within our family within our families, and also here within our church, that as, as men, we lead our families, and the men lead in the church. And as fathers and husbands, we represent our families before the Lord. And it's just a, something important for us to remember. Uh, do we pray to God in that way? Do we pray to God? Do we relate to God as representatives? Not just sort of me and my walk with Jesus and then we throw out some prayers. But do we think of ourselves, husbands and fathers, as coming before the Lord as representatives of our families? That is the picture that we get here. And it is the important role that God has placed on men 
within the home and within the church. So here we see that these representatives are to pay a particular amount of money or silver, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. This is roughly 11 grams of silver. So one commentator said this would be equivalent roughly to a quarter uh, in silver. So the weight of a quarter, you think about that. And it wasn't a coin, it was just the weight of that amount of silver. And this payment is here in this passage called three things. So look at these verses with me as I point this out to you. It is called three things. So first, verse 12, it is called a ransom for their lives. So it is a ransom for the life of each man. It is called in verse 13, an offering to the Lord. So it ransoms, it stands in, it purchases the life of each man who pays it. It is something offered to the Lord. It is vertical. And then verse 16, it is atonement money. It is atonement money, the idea of substitution. In other words, it is a substitute to be paid to the Lord in place of each person. And it is a substitute that brings ransom for their lives. In other words, it protects them from death. By, by paying this amount of money, by, by giving this tax, by giving this silver, it protects the people from death. And we see this protection at the end of verse 12 that there be no plague among them when you number them. So if a census is taken and the people do not do this, then God will strike the people with a plague and many will die. This is also this idea of substitution and ransom and so forth is also what we saw with the firstborn back in chapter 13, verse 13. You remember when we came out of the Passover, what did the Lord do in Egypt? He struck the firstborn of every animal and every, uh, of every home. He struck the firstborn, but he spared the firstborn of the Israelites. He passed over because of the blood on the top of the door and on the sides. And so coming out of all of that, we read this in Exodus 13, verse 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And so we have the same thing going on here. There is a redemption for the men over the age of 20 within Israel. In verse 16, we see that in addition to protecting the people from death, which is the first reason given, this payment also serves as a support for the tabernacle and as a memorial before the Lord that the people's lives are ransomed. So you see this in verse 16. Look there with me. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So it has these three functions. It makes atonement for their lives. It substitutes in place of their lives. It ransoms them. 
It functions for the upkeep of the tabernacle so that there will, all of this money will be used to support the tabernacle ministry. It will be used to support all of the atoning work that goes into the tabernacle as the Lord covers the sins of the people, as the Lord forgives the sins of the people, meets with them in the tabernacle. And finally, it will function as a memorial before the Lord. You might remember with the aphod and the breast piece, that when the high priest goes into the tent, that the Lord sees this aphod, he sees this breast piece. And what is, what is the response? He remembers. It's a remembrance before the Lord. God sees the aphod, he sees the names of the Israelites on that. He sees the breast piece, he sees the names of the Israelites. And so through the 12 tribes, through the representative high priest, all the people of Israel are represented before the Lord. The Lord sees those names as a sign and he remembers his covenant. He remembers his mercy. He remembers his grace. Now, of course, we know God doesn't forget anything, but it is a way of speaking. It's anthropomorphic. It it puts God in human terms so that we can understand functionally what is happening. That God remembers his covenant. He remembers his determination to be gracious with this people. And it's exactly the same thing that we see with the rainbow as we talked about with Noah. That God would see the rainbow and he would remember. And I I said before that we often think of the rainbow. Well, today the rainbow has been twisted. But we often think about the rainbow as a reminder of God's grace to humanity. And that's important. But when we go back and we read those passages in Genesis 9, we see that the rainbow functioned as a reminder to the Lord. That God would see it and he would pass over in a way of common grace for all of humanity. He would not destroy humanity again. Seed time and harvest would continue. He would not destroy the earth again with a flood. So in the same way, this silver that would be collected from the people and that would be invested in, folded into the tabernacle and all of its service would function before the Lord's eyes, before the face of God, as a reminder that these are a graced people. These are a people whom God has forgiven, is forgiving. These are a people whom God has graciously chosen to meet with. So, admittedly, this seems very strange to us. This whole census and the money and the silver and paying for your lives and all of that. It seems strange to us. So what are we to make of it in addition to what's already been said? What are we to make of this seemingly strange passage? And from our vantage point, it is strange. It's, it's distant. It's obscure. Well, there are several things I want to draw your attention to here as we try to take in what is in view here. So first... It is simply another pointer, just another pointer to God's holiness and their and our sinfulness. Just another reminder of this fundamental truth. You can never get away from this two-part truth. When you begin to get away from this two-part truth, The Christian life just begins to sort of crumble. And it doesn't crumble all the way. If you're a Christian, we know we're preserved. We persevere to the end. But but it begins to to sort of fall down a little bit. It begins to sort of cave in like an old house with with a roof caving in. 
when we lose sight of these two great truths. God is holy and we are sinners. And, and it's not just this truth and this truth. It is the way in which these two truths clash. This is one of the great truth combinations of the Bible. God's holiness and our sinfulness. This entire census tax, at the very least, is another pointer to this two-part truth. The penalty for sin is death. And the people of Israel are indeed sinners. So something must be done to atone for their sin. And we're seeing all kinds of ways that the Lord is atoning for their sin. We're seeing all kinds of ways in the tabernacle system. So in one sense, this is just another instance, another example of the way in which God is graciously dealing with sin in his holiness, in his Justice, because listen to this. This is so fundamental. When it's all said and done, God will not have overlooked a single human sin. Now that is breathtaking. And sometimes we think of God that way. That's not the case. Every single sin... Every single act of idolatry, every single act of rebellion, every single act of not loving God or of not loving neighbor, every single misspoken word and bad thought in the end will have been dealt with. That is the majesty of God's justice. Nothing passes by his eyes. Nothing is left unattended to. Nothing is just cast away or forgotten about or covered over with forgetfulness. Nothing. Every sin must be dealt with either on the cross or in hell. It's one or the other. So listen, this is a plea. Be reconciled to God through Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you have not trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins, know this, that you either have your sins dealt with by a holy, just God at the cross where Jesus took that sin upon himself in your place, or you will suffer eternally for your rebellion and hatred of God in hell. The world can cover up the truth of hell, can explain it away as a barbarism, as some sort of weird, twisted thing from, mediev uh, from medieval lure. The world can do all sorts of things with it, but the Bible is very clear that there is a hell, and that is where all will end up whose sin is not counted, dealt with at the cross. So listen, that's why we're here this morning. That's why, as Christians, we want to share the gospel. There are many reasons, but that, that's, we understand that it is that serious. It is heaven or hell. It is with the Lord forever, or it is eternal separation from God in absolute misery. Incomprehensible. 
incomprehensible, inutterable misery. Second, in addition to pointing to God's holiness and their sinfulness, we see with this census tax, this atonement money, that it also points to the fact that God does indeed deal with sin and death, right? So it's not just the truth that there is human sin and there is divine holiness and that God judges sinners, but it is, as I indicated even before, that God graciously deals with sin and death. He meets us in our fallenness. This in and of itself is such grace. Who are we? We deserve absolutely nothing from God. We know our sin. We know our thoughts. We know our self-centeredness. We know our grumbling and ingratitude and our idolatry, our trampling on neighbor, our blasphemy. We, We know our sin. What a grace that God would do anything at all to relate to us in this state. He relates to us in our fallenness. And he overcomes our sin and the penalty of death. He preserves life where death is deserved. And I think that's, that's what's in view here with this census tax. That's what's in view with this atonement money. Is here we have death deserved. You just can't forget that. The Israelites deserve death. We need to remember that all along the way. Yes, God brought them out. Yes, God passed over them. He brought them out. He's with them. He comes to them. They, they still deserve death. They still deserve death. It's only because of God's grace Evidenced here once again, symbolized here once again by this atonement money. He is the God who preserves life. And ultimately, we know that this is the ransom paid by Christ. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me say this. It's a picture The man gives this this little bit of silver. And that little bit of silver functions as a stand-in for his life. And this is just another little snapshot of what Jesus did at the cross. He went to the cross. He died the death of a sinner, though he was not a sinner. He died on the cross as the vilest of sinners. In our place, for our sin, so that we could be ransomed. Free. Not owing that debt to the Lord. We need to be ransomed. Sin must be dealt with. And the result of that is the conquering of death and eternal life. That's the result. The result of the ransom is the preservation of life. Not just for a little longer, but forever. Forever. Eternal life everlasting life through the ransom provided through Jesus. Third, this ransom or atonement money also shows that all Israel belongs to God, not just the firstborn. We know the firstborn was set apart in that way and were ransomed, but it's not just the firstborn. It's all Israel that is his possession. And we see the refrain in this passage, 
to the Lord. This constant emphasis that this atonement money is to be paid to the Lord. It is vertical. It's going up to God. Just another reminder that every single one of those Israelites belongs to God. And every single one of us this morning who bear the name of Christ, who are Christians, we belong to God. When we were converted, we stopped belonging to ourselves. We know what it looks like to belong to self. We love self. Self is our very best friend. All day, every day. We love ourselves. I've heard people say sometimes, you know, that, uh, we love our neighbor as ourselves, and they go on and on and on. I've heard this in sermons before, how we need to love ourselves. We have no problem with that. Now, we don't do it well, obviously. You know, you think about drug addiction or suicide and these other ways uh, in, in which we fail at loving ourselves. Uh, we think this will uh, be a, uh, something that satisfies us, and of course it doesn't. But what we understand is that we have no problem whatsoever loving ourselves. When we become Christians, we die to self. And by the way, let me just say this to the kids who are in here with us this morning. This is one of the most fundamental realities of conversion. Now, that doesn't mean that selfishness is eradicated. We all know that's not true. But what we do recognize is that when we become Christians, we do, in fact, die to self. There's a change in the heart that we can, we can identify, maybe not a point in time, but we are, we're at least able to see whether it's seasons or phases or maybe in a very hour. We see self was God. Self was worshipped. Now it's God. And, and when we are selfish, we, we hate it. We confess it. We see it. We fight it. We don't like it. We don't embrace it. It is a fundamental truth of the Christian gospel, that when we come to Christ, we die to self and we begin to belong to him. And the ransom money pictures that as well for all of Israel. Finally, God points to the danger involved in census taking within Israel. Now this is something that uh, it's important to note here with the census because it is unique to this census. I mean, it's unique to the, the notion of a census. We see this with David in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where his census brings plague. And uh, there's a lot going on there, and we're not going to get into all of that. But the point is just that there is a sense in which a census is dangerous for the Israelites. And we see an example of that in 2 Samuel 24 with David's census. The atonement money in the midst of census taking highlights the danger of self-reliance among God's people. Why was a census dangerous for God's people? Because in a census, you're stacking your chips. Right? We love to stack our chips. We love to kind of see where we are. Just kind of get that, uh, that sort of you know, accounting of, of, of our assets, whatever they may be. Uh, emotional assets, mental assets, intangibles, intangibles. We, we like to stack our assets and to calculate all of those things. And there is a danger, particularly for a people who are relying entirely on Yahweh. He is their mighty warrior. He's the one they praised when they came through the Red Sea as the conqueror of the Egyptians. It wasn't the Israelites. They were a ragtag bunch. They didn't do anything to the Egyptians. God did it. And here, 
in a census, there is great danger that trust in God will turn into self-reliance. We've got 603,000. We are 603,000 strong. A sense of strength in self. And let me just say this. I think this is applicable to us as we think about our own calculations. Human calculations can often result in human glory, human self-reliance, or let me say this one, human fear. Because when we do our calculations, we don't always come away with a positive response. Sometimes uh, we beat our chest after our calculations and we feel large and in charge. And other times we do our calculations and we feel small and inadequate and insecure. Whatever things there might be. In all of that, there is a movement of the eyes from God to self. From trusting in his power to relying on ourselves or crumbling in All the what-ifs of fear. All of this eclipses the Lord and His power. So, there is great danger as the Israelites here go through a census that that will happen to them as well. So, we see the money. And now we come to the basin. To the basin, verses 17 to 21. So, let's look at those verses. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. With which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So we see it as perpetual. This is the way it must be moving forward. And here we come to a theme that we've seen multiple times before. And I've said this before. There there is a lot of repetition as we go through the tabernacle. And I think that repetition, uh, it has didactic value. In other words, it has teaching value because that repetition, as we're getting hit with it over and over and over again, it is showing us how significant these great themes are. And this theme that we've seen multiple times is the theme of cleansing. Cleansing, washing, purity. Remember when the people were preparing to meet the Lord at Mount Sinai? That's been a little while ago, but you might remember chapter 19, verse 10 The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. You imagine all the people, two million plus strong, trying to make sure that they all get their garments washed because they are going to be presented before the Lord at the base of Mount Sinai. Incredible scene, just just hard to even, even picture what that would have been like. Just truly awesome. One of the great awesome scenes of the Bible. Also... Remember when the priests were ordained. We saw this again, and we've seen it in other places. But chapter 29, verse 4, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So this emphasis on cleansing, on washing. 
Whether it is the priest or the people, there is the need to be cleansed. And this is very important to say. This is not about laundry stains or germs, okay? Um, some say, well, you know, the Lord was, uh, obviously he knew about germs, and so there was this washing. Okay, well, I mean, you know, the same is true of some of the kosher laws, and people say, well, well this was all about diet stuff, and, you know, you read all of that, all of that sort of thing. And sure, yes, uh, you know, pork is not as healthy as <laughs> to eat as other stuff. Uh, that, that, that may be playing a role uh, to some degree, but this is not about laundry stains or germs. You're not going to get many germs off just running some water, probably dirty water, over your hands. It is about spiritual realities that are depicted through physical acts. Spiritual realities being depicted and symbolized through these physical acts. The act of washing, cleansing oneself, is a picture of preparing to meet the Lord. It is a picture, once again, of human sinfulness and divine holiness. The, the priests are to be cleansed before they go and meet with the Lord. Remember, it's the meeting place. Before they meet with the Lord, they are to be cleansed. Human sinfulness and divine holiness. So let me just ask two questions of us this morning. First, how does this preparatory work factor into your life? Well, we do it in our service. We confess our sins at the beginning of the service. There's a reason we do that. We consider God's holiness. We put that in view. And then we consider our sinfulness. We confess our sins. It, it flows out. It's a preparatory work as we prepare to meet God through the remainder of the service. So let me just ask you, is your life with God, is your walk with God, I think it's a very biblical idea going all the way back to Genesis. I love to, to think of it in that way, the image of a, a child walking, holding the hand of, of, of their mom or dad along a beach or something like that. Your walk with God what role does preparatory work have in your life? Or are you just sort of always just winging it? Always just shooting from the hip? Taking those new covenant gospel realities and justifying a sort of flippancy in how you relate to God in all the movements and rhythms of life. Personally and in your family and corporately and all the rest. I think we are meant to understand that there is a, a preparatory cleansing work that goes into our relating to God. That as we come to God, how many times do we just come to God, all our sin, all our nastiness just hanging off of us, the, the mistreatment of people five minutes ago. And then we have the boldness, which we are told to be bold in God's presence. But then we have the audacity, just smeared sin, all all. Over the last hour. And we come to God in that state and just start asking him for stuff. Gimme, 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 gimme. There was so much wrong with that. There's just so much wrong with that. Filled with give me's. No preparation of the heart to meet with the Holy God. Yes, we are in Christ. Yes, we have access. Yes, we have boldness. All the more reason to prepare our hearts to see and meet with God. To be in his presence. Let me also ask you this question. 
Have you delegitimized physical acts in your spirituality? So let me explain what I mean there. Have you, have you come to the conclusion, well, it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's all sort of the heart and the relationship with God and it's all what's going on on the inside. What I do on the outside doesn't really matter. Is there any basis for that in Scripture? I would just challenge you to think about that. That there is a, a, a link between our bodies and our hearts. And so it does matter what we do with our bodies. And there's ways in which we can posture our bodies and carry our bodies and use our bodies that enhance our souls. And there's ways in which we can actually detract from our worship with what we do with our physical bodies. We're not just little hovering spirit beings. We are embodied creatures. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's a good idea to teach our kids to close their eyes during prayer. And, and the, 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 some of this stuff that happens where we, we bow our heads and we fold our hands and close our eyes, those things aren't requirements. You know, you better not do that when you're driving, for sure. I was talking to my daughter about that the other day. That'd be a very terrible idea, very unloving. Uh, to do that while you're driving. But we, we recognize that there's value. There's value in getting on your knees in prayer before God. That is not valueless. That is not senseless. That is not without its help to the soul. Imagine if your soul is in a grumbly state, filled with ingratitude, and you fall on your knees. Your heart doesn't feel like talking to the Lord, Praising his holiness, you're mad, but you fall on your knees before God. What does that do to your heart as you think about the posture of your body? We know this in all of life. Why do we not do this in our spiritual lives as well? So moving along, keep in mind that the priests are representatives of the people. And they are tasked with approaching the Lord in the tent of meeting. They're tasked with approaching God as representatives. It is their job to offer up the sacrifices that atone for the people's sins. So the Lord provides a means of washing. A means of washing with the tabernacle structure, within the tabernacle structure. And this is where we get the basin. Made of bronze, just like the bronze altar. And if you guys will go ahead and put up that slide again, we'll see the little basin there. So you see the two priests there, the high priest and another priest there uh, around the basin. Uh, conveniently located around what we're talking about today, so that's helpful. So you see the basin there. Before they go into the tent and before they come to the bronze altar to do their sacrifices, they must wash at the basin. And we're not given any details about it. And in that sense, it is less of a piece of furniture and more of a preparatory device. So, so hear me on that. The basin is less a piece of furniture and more of something that prepares the priests to approach the pieces of furniture. So we're not given description of its details. The priests were to use it to wash their hands and their feet. These representative members, their hands and their feet stained by sin, but being used to serve the Lord. And that just reminds us, though our members are stained by sin, though this mouth and this tongue and this mind, these words 
are stained by sin, the Lord uses it nonetheless. And that's his grace in all of our lives. He uses sinful people to carry out glorious work in all kinds of ways. These men with stained hands and stained feet wash and are made clean before the Lord. And they were to do this before entering the tent or burning sacrifices, as we read in verse 20. And this is to be done, verses 20 to 21, stated twice, so that they may not die. Once again, God saving their lives. The Lord is concerned with preserving their lives. But God cannot merely overlook sin. It must be addressed. So God has been gracious to them. That doesn't mean they just roll up in the tent, right? That doesn't mean they just walk over to the altar and start doing their thing. What it means is they must wash. God has made a means. He's made a way, but they must wash. And here we are seeing another way, another way in which human sin and divine holiness are addressed. God cleanses, God washes away. So I want to give two gospel implications before I close this morning. Two very majestic gospel implications. First, Jesus needs no basin. Jesus needs no basin. These priests, they needed a basin. And they needed a basin for every subsequent generation. Throughout your generations, go to the basin, wash the hands, wash the feet before you minister. Period. Jesus needs no basin because Jesus was entirely without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He was he who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin. Inconceivable. Zero. None. He committed no sin. Hebrews or 1 Peter 2.22 Hebrews 4.15 He was without sin. Inconceivable to us what it is to be without sin. One day we will know that. We will experience that. And we can't fathom the joy that we will have being conscious of our sinlessness before God in Christ. Blows the mind to think of that because we just don't know what that is like. Jesus perfectly without sin. And therefore, his work on the cross was perfect to justify sinners. If Christ is your Savior, if he is your priest, you are free. You are free. You have no guilt before this holy God. He is the pleasing aroma. He is the sacrifice on the altar. His blood is the blood on the mercy seat. 
And he's the priest who makes it all happen. Trust this Christ. Why? Why? Run from this Christ. Why rely on yourself? Why love this world and its riches and its pleasures to the damnation of your own soul? When there is this Christ with this blood, this priest, this perfection, this freedom for sinners. Why? Be reconciled to God. Second, as we close, this is a picture of what the Lord does for us in conversion. As we think about these priests washing the hands and washing the feet, it's a picture of what the Lord does for us in conversion and which is symbolized in baptism. I want to read you some verses here. And just let them fall on your heart like sweet morsels for your soul. This is what the Lord does when he saves a sinner. Which means if you're not saved, if you have not come to faith in Christ, if you are not born again, that this is not you, but through Christ this can be you. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 6.11 After all those sins mentioned, Paul says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what the Lord does when he saves us. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And as those who are washed, we step into the service of God with holiness of Life. So let me ask you this morning have you been washed? And if you are washed in the blood of the Lamb in Christ, then ask yourself this Am I carrying out the duties of holiness and service to the Lord that come after that washing, as we see pictured here in the tabernacle? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your grace. We thank you for your presence with your people. We thank you, Lord, that you are not distant from us. Though you are holy and though we are sinful, you have made yourself known to us through Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the indwelling Holy Spirit, for his presence with us always, even in our times of great struggle. Lord, we praise you for your mercy. We ask this morning that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that our remembrance of what Christ did would be strong, Lord, and that our desire to live holy, washed lives would also be strong, and that we would have that zeal for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.